All right, good morning, church. Uh, that, that was a video of Catherine Moore. Now, who's Catherine? Well, she was a medical student who came to our church, and no one goes to medical school to become a Christian, right? No one goes, I'm going to go to medical school and become a Christian. Well, Catherine did, and uh, we love that story. That's, we've heard that story many times in our church. Come, medical school becomes a Christian, gets discipled, gets baptized, and now she's in residency somewhere else in our nation following the Lord. And we want more and more of those stories. And so one of the things I want to talk to you about just for a second, and I know I talk about this a lot, but it's just the fact that we are currently... I mean, look around this room, right? We do four services. Well, we are out of space. We are out of seats. We are out of services. I mean, I, that I know of in the triad, and the triad is almost 2 million people. There are only two churches in the entire triad that do four services on a weekend. Four live services. We're one of them, okay? And so we're doing as many services as we possibly can. We've got as many seats as we possibly can. We've got the smallest seats that we possibly can. Okay, we've got people sitting in the lobby. Okay, that, yeah, that's a lobby over there, but there's lots of seats in there. Uh, we are almost breaking fire code. I said almost, we're not, we have not broken fire code. But I tell you this, guys, because we have to do something. Okay, here's what happened. Let me say one other thing first. It is, it is, and we're also gonna just continue to grow. And here's how we know this, because, well, churches, just like organizations or businesses or families or schools, we have seasons, right? And the slowest season in the life of almost any church is Memorial Day to July 4th, which we just finished up, okay? And even then, we didn't slow down and stand still, but it was a little bit slower, and now, we're beginning to grow again. A lot of people are coming. Well, why is that? Well, it's like, well, if you were going to move here, if you were going to move to Winston-Salem and you had a family and you wanted your kids to go, come to school, when would you move? Well, you would move in the summer. And then there's medical students and there's residents and there's fellows and there are grad students. And then guess what happens next month? All of the Wake Forest students come and they all end up at our Sunday night services and like overnight our Sunday night service doubles in size. And, and so... <laughs> Here's what we're trying to do. We're trying to figure out, okay, what, 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 what can we do? Because most people who come, and I don't know why this is, but most people who come for the first time, and you know, we have lots each week, and so that's some of you in here right now. Uh, you come in the morning services, and if, if, if you're brand new and you came in the morning, welcome, we're glad you're here. But let me tell you what happened last week. Uh, last week, we, we have a 9.15 and 11 o'clock service in the morning. At the 9.15 service, this is the first time I think this has ever happened. It was so full. I mean, it's full today, but it was full, full, full yesterday, or last week. Uh, at the 9.15, we had at least five, maybe close to 10 people come in, look at the lobby, look at the worship center and leave. Yeah, it's like, you know, we don't want that. That's, that's something we want to communicate. You know, when we don't have space for somebody, we basically communicate, we weren't thinking about you. We're not ready for you. We're not prepared for you. This isn't the place for you. Had another lady, she came to our weekend or she wrote down, she said that the first two or three times she came to our church, she couldn't find a parking spot, so she left. I'm thinking, how often does that happen? So here's what we're trying to ask. We're trying to, if Two Cities Church is your home, not if you're brand new, if you're checking us out, come whenever you want. But if like you're core, you're committed, you're in, this is your church, would you consider moving to Saturday night or Sunday night for the rest of the time we're in this building till we get in our new building? We've got about 12 to 14 months left. And guys, as a, as a friend of mine who's in the business world says, he, he, he looked at me, he goes, Kyle, he said, Two Cities Church is sweating the assets. Okay, I said assets, just to make sure y'all understood that, okay? <laughs> sweating the assets. And I guess that's a business term. I didn't know that. That's a business term for wearing things out. And we are, in a good way, we're wearing this building out. We're wearing our kids' space out. We're wearing the parking lot out. We can't do more services. We're asking, if you could, would you and your family or you and your spouse, or if you're single, you by yourself, could you go to Saturday night or Sunday night? Could you recruit your whole community group? Could you get some of your friends? Because this is a temporary problem. We're moving in 14 months, we'll be in a new facility, but we're trying to make space and we're gonna be out of space, and that's gonna be even more evident as we head into August. So I'm just gonna pray for us about that, and then we're gonna dive into 2 Samuel. Uh, Lord, I just take a moment, I pray that everyone would just take a moment and consider that. <laughs> consider when could they potentially serve. A way to serve would be to come to our Sunday night or our Saturday night services. 
whether they could use it as an opportunity with their kids to go out to dinner after Saturday nights or whether they could grab their community group or whatever it would look like for them. I actually think if they do it, they will enjoy it. Lord, I pray that people would make that commitment, that they would move for the sake of mission, Lord, and that you would continue because we're doing this not just because we want more people to come. We're doing this because we want more stories like Catherine's. And, uh, and when we don't have a seat for a person, it means it communicates we don't have a place for them. And if we don't have a place for them, we can't disciple them and show the gospel to them. And that's what we want to do. So we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, you can type two, turn to Second uh, Samuel 11 and 12. Uh, so guys, we're in a series on David. We're almost done. We got after this week, we got two weeks left, and we're gonna launch a new series in August. We love this series so far. If you, if you love King David, and we all do, I mean, he's one of the most beloved characters. It's like up until today, and we're gonna, today's a sad, sobering story, and we'll get there. Up until today, it feels like David can do no wrong. Have you ever felt like that about somebody? You meet someone like, Dude, they, does this person make any mistakes, right? I mean, we, we know there's no perfect people. There's not a perfect person outside of the Lord Jesus. But it's like, I mean, David feels pretty close, right? It's like, well, how about you be the humble shepherd boy who is forgotten by the family, but anointed king, that's pretty cool. Then how about you fight the battle that no one else fights? And then when you win that battle, you share it with everyone you love. It's like, well, <laughs> you'd be lucky if you'd met one person in your life who did those things. And then on top of that, why don't you just be an unbelievably good friend? And why don't you be a good friend uh, to your enemy's son and love him as, 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 you, as yourself? And he does that. And then well, actually when Saul and, and Jonathan uh, you know, both die, why don't you take Jonathan's disabled son into your family and care for him as your own? And then when you're king, why don't you, why don't you go bring worship back to the center of the people of God and lead the way in that? It's like David does all of that. And so if we didn't have chapters 11 and 12 today, and if we were just reading this, we might think David has an S on his chest, right? <laughs> we might think David, he has a cape. But today we're gonna see a different story. And if you turn with me to 2 Samuel 11 and 12, I'll meet you there in a minute. Uh, what you see in the book of 2 Samuel, some of you are nerdy like me and you like book outlines and you wanna know how the whole Bible fits together and how each book fits together. Uh, what you see in 2 Samuel is at first, the first 10 chapters are David's successes. So right, he fights all these battles. He's fighting the Jebusites. He's fighting the Ammonites. He's fighting the Electrolytes. He's fighting the Parasites. I'm seeing if y'all are paying attention. He fights all the ites, okay? He fights the ites and, and he wins against them, okay? And everybody loves them. And I told you all the other great things he does. And then chapter 11 and chapter 12 is David's sin. And we're gonna see it and we're gonna try the best to, to take our time and walk through these two chapters this morning. But it's a very sad story. It's David's sin with Bathsheba. It's David lying. It's David being deceitful. It's David killing Uriah. It's David being disciplined by the Lord. And, and then chapters 13 to the end of the book of 2 Samuel is David's suffering and struggles and shame. And so if you think about it, that's what it is. It's, well, first 10 chapters, success. Chapters 11 and 12, sin. Chapters 13 and following is his struggles, his suffering. And, and so here's what we're talking about today, guys. We're talking about, and it, this comes up every once in a while. It doesn't matter what book I preach through. It's like I go through Sermon on the Mount, or we go through the book of James. We go through First Peter. We go through a Pauline epistle. We go through an Old Testament narrative. We go through Proverbs. It doesn't matter. We go through Song of Solomon. It always comes up, sexual sin. And you may go, well, you know, because, and every once in a while people say, Kyle, you kind of talk about like, you know, you, you call people out about pornography and you warn about loss and you talk about fornication and dating and you call out cohabitating and you talk a lot about sexual stuff. It's like, well, it's only because the Bible does. Now, listen, sexual temptation, it's unique. Um, all of us here are sexual sinners. We're all sexually broken. We all have sexually disordered desires. I know it's a weird thing to say in church, but it's what we are. It's like whether it's homosexual desire, same-sex attraction, heterosexual, passionate lust, we all are sexually broken, right? Now, they, they, in fact, they say there's three types of men, if you don't know this, right? There is men who, men who struggle with lust, there are liars, and there are dead men. 
And that's it. <laughs> that's all of men. I just described all of men to you. Now, but, but lust also, it's uniquely, sexual sin is also uniquely painful and uniquely shameful. We know it's uniquely shameful. It's like, it's why we don't talk about it. Like, you know, if you could find one or two friends who you trust and you could begin to open up about it, like, good for you. And hopefully you'll find that and hopefully you'll do that. But most people's like, oh, well, I'll tell you about my marriage and I'll tell you about my work and I'll tell you about my boss and I'll tell you about my wife and I'll tell you about my kids. And I'll give you a couple of sins that we kind of all, I struggle with pride, you know, whatever it is. But I'm not gonna really open up about sexual sin. It's uniquely shameful. It's uniquely painful. It's why like when you think about your past, most of your pain in the past is sexual in nature. It's like, I shouldn't have done that in middle school. I shouldn't have done that in high school. I shouldn't have done that in college. It's something you did. It's something that was done to you. It's, and it's uniquely painful to other people, right? It's just like something about it. It's like you find out your dad did something. You're like, whoa, man, this hurts. You find out your kid did something. It hurts. You find out your spouse did something. It really hurts. So David today, he's, he's going to give in to sexual temptation. The second thing I want us to see as we kind of go into the story, and we're going to see it in a minute, is that he uniquely struggles because he makes one bad decision. It's going to lead to many other decisions, right? But one way to think about your life, there's a lot of ways to think about your life, I know that. But one way to think about your life is you are the sum total of all the decisions that you've ever made. It's like, well, that makes sense, right? And who knows how many decisions you make. You make thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of decisions a day. But then every once in a while, you'll make like a big decision, right? Like, like, here's the three big ones, right? Who will you worship? Who will you wed? Where will you work? Well, you figure those three things out, you'll be busy for 40 or 50 years, you know? That'll keep you busy. But those are big decisions that you make, I think, for my own life. About seven years ago, got in this thing called the Summit Network Residency. It was what became uh, the church plant that became this church. And man, that, that completely changed the direction and the quality of my life and my family's life forever. It's one of the probably top 10 greatest decisions I've ever made by God's grace. So you can see that. But then also, right, we all have, and we don't want to talk about these as much. These aren't as fun to talk about, obviously, is the bad decisions that we made. Right? It's like, dude, I drank too much. Well, I mean, I did that a couple of times, but maybe you drank too much that one time and you drank too much and you were in the wrong place at the wrong time, which is, that's why we're all capable of anything, right? Or you traveled and you normally brought someone, but you didn't this time. Or, you know, you've always thought about the coworker, but you look back and it was when you texted him. That's when it all started. You were home alone and you just wanted to see what it was like to drink too much. And you can look back and go, that's where it started. Now, what's interesting is when you counsel people, and I don't do a ton of counseling, but I talk to people who do a lot of counseling. When you counsel people, basically what you have to do, and it takes a long time, is you have to get back to the decision that they made that got them in this mess. And that normally takes, they say, like six or 10 counseling sessions. It's like, all right, your marriage is a mess. It's like, all right, we got to get back to like, what did you do? Where did it start? What was the decision? And it's like, you're in like the sixth session, and, so, and you're one of you goes like, hey, it was it. I decided 12 years ago to stop talking about this. What? Yeah. It was 13 years ago, and the family was on vacation, and... I was bored and I decided to look at, and that was the first time. It's like, okay, well, thank you for your honesty. We had to get back to the decision. And so what we're gonna see today is David makes one major decision that leads to a lot of other terrible decisions that spirals his life down because of sexual sin and sexual temptation. So it's a sobering story, but, but look, it's written so that we would learn from it, right? I mean, life is too short, too painful to learn everything by experience. And so we need to realize, look, if David can fall, any of us can fall, right? Unless you have a heart for God bigger than David, you're gonna, you could fall. Unless you're wiser than Solomon, you could fall. <laughs> Unless you've got more faith than Abraham, you could fall. And so let's look at this story. We're gonna take it verse by verse. Look, look at me at 2 Samuel 11, and we'll start in verse one. 
Uh, big idea, by the way, for this, if you're, if you're gonna follow the whole kind of thread of how 11 and 12 go together, here's where we're going. Sin deceives David. David deceives others. The Lord uh, disciplines David. That's the whole story. First five verses, sin deceives David. Rest of 11, David deceives others. 12, God disciplines David. All right, let's look at this. Here, here's what it says. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged uh, Rabbah. Now, uh, I'm gonna read that last verse in a second, but that you can see that the but there is to show in contrast. So let's first talk about what's happening here. The, the kings are going out to war. Now you may go, well, why, why in the spring do you go out to war? Well, th- here's kind of a technical historical thing. Uh, there was only, back then, there was only certain seasons you could go to battle, you know? It's like, I know today we have ships and massive ships that can go, and we've got, you know, uh, planes and military vehicles. It's like back then, they basically fought with chariots and with horses, and it's like, well, it's, if, it's, if it's rainy, it's muddy. If it's muddy, we, we, the, the chariots and the horses get stuck, and we can't go. So you can't fight us, and we can't fight you. And so during that season, the winter and the rainy season, you know, they would basically, they would strategize, they would organize, they would get their advisors around, they would get ready for battle. And so what happens with David is, you know, he, he doesn't go out to war, right? Look at verse, here it is, the end of the verse. It says, uh, but David remained at Jerusalem. Now, a couple things about David at this point, because we need to understand who David is and where he's at. Uh, he's about to have a failure after lots of successes. And how common is that story, right? You all know people like that. In fact, it kind of makes you surprised as you get to know people like that. You're like, wait a second, he had everything. I don't get it. He had the job. Like, you know how big his salary was? You know what his schedule was like? He had every, you, you see his house? He had it all. You'll see this, it's like a certain politician, you're like, he had everything, he was so popular, and then he fell. A certain pastor, the church was huge, it was having an influence, and then he fell. Now, I don't know, I don't know if successful people fall more than not successful people. Maybe we notice their fall more. Maybe that's what happens, who knows? But I think something happens, so when you're successful, and many of you already are very successful, but a lot of you are young, and you're going to be successful, you're just not there yet, you, you know, you're in medical school, you're in residency, you're in law school, you're figuring, you're starting your business, I get it. You're building your family. But a lot of you, you're gonna eventually be successful. And here's what happens when you're successful. You have more discretionary income and you have more discretionary time, right? And more discretionary income just means you can do more of what you wanna do. That's what, that's what money does to you. It magnifies and amplifies your personality. So you're like, well, I like this. Well, now you can enjoy that, right? You have discretionary time, but then here's what happens with that. Then all of a sudden, you find out that you're the one in charge. This is what David found out. He's not shepherd boy anymore. He's king. Who does he answer to? And you might find that someday. It's like, well, I don't know. What he, I don't know. I have like maybe one guy I talk to once a month about my life. I basically do what I want to do. And so David's isolated. Here's the other temptation when you're successful. You start to think you're special. You know, and, and here's the hard thing. It's like, is David special? Yes. But it's like, you, David, but you can't think about yourself that way. You are special. God is uniquely using you, but stay humble. I heard a story of a pastor. He was very successful, podcast, YouTube, um, you know, preaching, conferences, consulting, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then he, he had a fall and he, he fell, you know, into, it wasn't sexual sin, it was like a domineering spirit and all of that kind of stuff. And I was watching some interviews about him and, and some of his former coworkers said there was this time where he was traveling somewhere, he went and stayed at a really nice hotel and they thought they were staying at the nice hotel with him. And he said, no, no, you, you guys are staying at the Motel 6 or whatever it was, the equivalent of Motel 6. And they were like, they were all confused. And he said to them, guys, I'm a big deal. And they laughed. <laughs> they thought he was quoting Ron Burgundy. <laughs> they literally said, we thought he was quoting Ron Burgundy, he was joking. But what had happened is, and if I told you the guy's name, you would realize he was a big deal. He was having a huge influence, but he let it get to his head. 
You start thinking you're special. You start thinking the rules don't apply to you. David right now is midlife also. So that's another thing to think about. David is, and a lot of you are midlife. Midlife is like, you know, early 40s to like early 50s, midlife. And there are unique temptations at midlife. And again, I don't know if people fall more at midlife. It feels like they do. I just think maybe the stakes are higher because like, I don't know, you're 20 and you do something foolish. It's like, well, you're 20. And your girlfriend's mad at you and you lost your you know, terrible job that you had. <laughs> well, repent and grow up and let's do something else, right? But it's like, but say you're like 48 years old and you've got like three or four kids. And there's like a lot of employees that are connected to you and you've got a spouse, and you're somebody in your city. And then you fall. It's like, God, oh, so you fell from such a great height. And so they, they say there's three temptations at midlife. There's the, the temptation, the first temptation is just to experience dread. And dread basically means you start realizing that you're going to die, which they say usually actually starts happening around 30. You, you, like, you become aware of your mortality. But it really hits you around 40. And, you, and you, start to, you start to feel like, wait, the hourglass is turned over and half the sand's at the bottom. And if I'm thinking about my life and I'm thinking about my health, if I'm thinking actually about my health and my vigor and my strength and my youth, it's like two thirds over. So the dread can make you do foolish things because you feel like there's, I got 20 years left, I better do so. If you take God out of the equation, I got 20 years left, what do I want? Well, that'll lead you to a lot of different places. They say the second thing is discouragement, right? That's the midlife crisis. Around, guys, this is a universal thing. This isn't an American thing. This isn't a 2022 thing. I mean, the midlife crisis is well-documented. It's something like discouragement sets in. It's like, dude, I don't make as much money as I was hoping to make. I don't like my spouse like I thought I'd like her or him. I don't like my house. I don't like my job. This is it? Well, that'll make you do some foolish things. And the third is kind of maybe the one that David struggles with, disinterest. It's hard to determine why this happens, but I've talked to men who this happens with. It's just like, what I was excited about, I'm not excited about anymore. I don't know why. Like, I, I don't need more money. I've kind of been doing the same thing for 20, 25 years, and I know how to do it. I'm kind of bored with it. I'm getting a little too old to do my hobbies. I don't do them as good as I, I just kind of have lost interest in life. And the disinterested person is looking for excitement somewhere. So we don't know what David is exactly doing, but here's what happens next. In verse two, it says this. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. So David is, it's not just that he didn't go out to battle. You've probably heard that sermon. Keep in battle, stay in battle, go to battle. Amen, I believe in that. But the pro, you, a king could not go to battle and work on other things. And that, sometimes a king needs to do that, right? Because sometimes you're in a different stage of your life. Sometimes you have to move and every guy needs, a, girls too, ladies too, need to learn this, that you move, sometimes you have to move from warrior to king. And they actually say that happens around midlife. I move from warrior to king. But if you're king, I care for people. If you're king, I stay back to care for the city. If you're king, I, I, I'm working on the temple. If you're king, I'm, I'm fixing the problems. If you're king, I'm staying connected to those who are fighting the battle. See, David, the, the problem is not just he wasn't a battle. The problem is he's bored. The problem is he's idle. What did your grandma always say, right? An idle mind is the devil's work factory or something like that. And, and so this is, it's very dangerous. Now there's dangers, I've preached sermons on the dangers of being busy. The dangers of being busy are basically you, on, here's the basic danger of being busy. Um, you stop caring for your soul, you're unaware of what's going on, and then you burn out or blow up. As a general rule, that's what you'll see guys do who are really busy. I think there's a lot, and there's danger there. I just warned of, so, of it. But I think the bigger danger is boredom, right? A bored man is in, oh, he's a dangerous person. He doesn't realize how dangerous he is to himself and to everybody else in his life. You know, and this is why, again, there may be some exceptions. There's always exceptions to everything, right? 
But I, I, you know, I, I think the stay-at-home dad is a terrible idea. I just said it. Because I've met the stay-at-home dad. He's depressed, usually. I've met the stay-at-home dad. He's usually looking at things he shouldn't be looking at. He's usually very, he, he usually has a lot of goofy hobbies. He spends too much time on the internet. He eats and drinks too much. Men are like trucks. We, we're like dump trucks. We need as much weight on our back as possible, and then we'll drive straight. Otherwise, we're all over the place, okay? You know it's true. And so, and this is why, you know, so for others of you, like, we're, this is the great thing about the church. It's like, I'm looking around. It's like, we're all different ages and stages in life. It's like, well, how about retirement? Because some of you, it's like, dude, if you're a baby boomer, you know, it's like, <laughs> stock market has been overall pretty good to you. And, you know, pretty soon you're going to be able to retire if you can't already. And, and look, retire, it's, it's not a sin to retire, obviously. It's a sin to retire from life. It's a sin to retire from the Great Commission. Um, and, but and there's certain people that you can retire because, yeah, I don't know, you've got two or three nonprofits you're passionate about. You've got four or five healthy habits that you've got that are hobbies also. And you love your grandkids and you're going to be super involved and, appraisal, and you're going to be actively involved in your church and praise the Lord, you can retire. But I would say there's a lot of guys who just can't retire because work is one of the things that regulates a man's life. You know, and it's like, man, all, all of a sudden, the guy who doesn't have to work, he starts drinking a little bit too much. He starts eating a little bit too much. He's, he doesn't know what to do. He starts being friends with all the neighbors and the wives. And I mean, it just, it just gets weird. And, and so David, it says he sees this woman. So he goes up on the roof and he sees Bathsheba. Now, how did he get to do that? Well, this is a darker part of the story, if you didn't know this. Uriah was one of his good friends and Uriah was one of his 30 mighty men. And so you know, nothing's changed, right? Who gets the best houses in the best locations in the city? The wealthiest people do. Well, David, we'll see in two weeks. David's unbelievably wealthy. So he has the second best house. I mean, God has the best house. <laughs> God has the temple. It's gonna be built a little bit higher than David's house. Then there's David's house. And then there's the 30 guys that were his best men. They're his houses. So Uriah's house is right next to him. Now, listen, David before, well, he never gets to be home when Uriah's gone. So Uriah's gone fighting. David usually is gone. So, so now... Bathsheba's home and Uriah's gone and David goes up to his roof. Now, does David know that Bathsheba's gonna be there and bathe? And we don't know all the details of that story. But we do know this, that, well, let me ask you this. What are the roofs that you walk up onto, proverbially speaking, to stare out at the Bathsheba's in your life, right? I know the easy example is pornography. That's easy. It's like, of course, Kyle's gonna say that. Well, what about social media? I mean, I don't know what, so, none of us know what social media is. I mean, who knows what it is? What is Instagram? It's like, we don't know. What's Facebook? We have no idea. What's Twitter? I don't know. What is it? We don't know. We're figuring it out. And, and one of the things is, it's interesting, is like, you know, what happens with, with, with Facebook, and I think it's a big thing, and Instagram too, is like, you know, anybody that you're friends with, and maybe they're not, even if, if their privacy settings aren't on, uh, it's like, even if you're not friends with them, you get to look at their whole life. What's interesting, though, is, and, and some people share too much on Facebook, like they share too much, like their political party stance, and all their passions, and all their things they're upset with, and they write long posts that four people read. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> But, but then there's, there's other people who they share too much of just their body, right? It's like, well, here's the spring break pictures again, and, you know, here's the summer pictures again. And, you know, what's the difference between a bikini and underwear? The fabric. I think that's it. And, and so, so what's interesting is that we live in the first time in human history where you can look at your friends in their underwear. I know, you're like, this, did he just say that out loud? <laughs> I know, I know. But it's just, like, it's just like one of those things. It's like, it's so, it's so strange. And so we have this peeping Tom kind of mentality. And this is why Facebook and Instagram will never reveal, you know, who looks at whose profiles. Everyone be ashamed and embarrassed. 
But I heard a divorce lawyer say that what she has seen is the connection between social media and divorce. Because all of a sudden you can look at your ex whatever and your sweetheart from high school and your friend and girlfriend from college and you can follow them and you can watch them and you can direct message them and you can get involved in all that. For women, sometimes it's reading books, right? I mean, the Fifty Shades of Grey, yeah. I'm sure none of you read it, but it was the fastest selling fiction book in human history. And it's basically Beauty and the Beast turned into pornography. That's what, that's what it is. And, uh, and why did it become so fast selling? Well, because it's the same time the Kindle and the iPad came out. So you can read it on the plane and no one knows what you're reading. Whole point is you just need to know in your life, what are your temptations and how do you avoid them? What are the roofs, right? Because I, David needs to put a lock on that roof from the other side. That his friend has a key and he can't get up that, there, there anymore. And that's what he needs to do. Because it's always easier, you know this too, it's always easier to avoid temptation than to get out of temptation. I, a lot of us think like, how much temptation can I handle? Yeah! You know? Well, how about just I, being humble and godly enough to say, I can't do that. So for me, I cannot keep bluebell ice cream in my house. <laughs> can I get an amen? I mean, it's just like, I mean, I, you know, it's, it's just so good. And, and, I, and I just, if I, especially if I'm home alone, it's like, I'm gonna eat that every night. It's like, I just, I can't keep it in my house. If it's in my house, I'm gonna do it. For some people, that's alcohol. For some people, that's food. I knew one guy, he, he, was, he had a problem with porn. And as embarrassing as it was, he had a dumb phone. A dumb phone, someone said, what's a dumb phone? A dumb phone is a phone that you can only call people on. It has no access to the internet. And people would make fun of him for having this dumb phone. But it's like, dude, he had a problem and he knew, he knew basically if I have a dumb phone, I can't do these things. Because I was tempted to do them on my phone when I'm by myself. Well, if I have a dumb phone, I can't do them. So what David does is he sees Bathsheba, it says in verse two. And it says he sees her, he, look, he sees a beautiful naked woman bathing. This is going to be a temptation for any guy. What, what he should have done at that moment, right, is he should have gone downstairs and he should have taken a cold shower. He should have called his friend. He should have prayed. He should have gone on a run. He should have whatever. He should have done what Joseph did, put his Nikes on and headed in the other direction, right? <laughs> but he didn't do any of that. And so what's interesting though is, is we have to talk about the difference between the glance and the gaze because this is helpful because I think the glance, so it's not a sin to notice somebody is attractive. Some people, they have very, now most of us need a more sensitive conscience, but some people we have, overly sensitive conscience. And people feel like if I even notice that he's good looking, I feel bad. If I even notice that she's pretty, it's like, I don't believe the glance is ever going away. You're gonna notice beauty. God, you know, God created beauty. And when you see it, you're gonna notice it. You're gonna say something like, he's good looking, she's hot. Does he work out? Or <laughs> she takes her vitamins. I mean, whatever it is, <laughs> you're gonna notice it. That's it. <laughs> and you just go, that, okay, I, you know, and then you move on. You go, hey, she's, she's really good looking or he's really good looking. The, the glance is just noticing. Now, now the, the, the difference is what do you do after you, the glance? And the gaze is what gets David in trouble. The, the gaze is, you know, what, that line of lust is when you are captivated by that beauty, you meditate on that beauty and you wanna do something about that beauty. First in your mind and maybe then with your body. That's where lust comes in. So for David, he has this moment. Now, look, it could all be over. We said this right, it could be over, but he makes the next mistake in verse three, if you look at me. In verse three, here's what he does. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now this is interesting. So he, does, he becomes interested in the wrong things, right? You become too interested in all the internet has to offer. You become too interested in another person's profile pictures. 
we become very, we become, we become too interested in a show that's not the right show you should be watching on Netflix. I mean, it could be any of those types of things. And, and what happens here, you'll notice, is there's a guy, it says, we don't get his name, he tries to warn Uriah, or, or sorry, warn David uh, about Bathsheba. And again, David's the king, so this guy's afraid. But notice he says, isn't this Uriah's wife? And isn't her, doesn't she also have a dad? In other words, he's trying to remind her, this guy, this girl has a dad and is somebody's daughter and is somebody's wife and has a husband. Trying to remind, because here's what happens whenever you give in to like sexual sin, you look at pornography, you lust after somebody, whatever. You have to depersonalize them and dehumanize them. You know, it's like, it's like I was listening, I watch comedians every once in a while and you might go, well, why? Well, because it's only politicians and pastors and comedians who stand up and talk to people for an hour, you know, so I figured I could learn a couple things. So, so I was watching these comedians and then I started watching women comedians and women comedians, they talk about, you know, a lot of times inappropriate stuff, but one of the things they talk about is just women, like in how women think about things. I'm like, well, I could learn a lot here too. So, so I started watching <laughs> and, and the woman, this lady's talking, she's single and she's really funny and she's talking about the dating scene and all these, fun, and she says all these funny things. But then she says, she's talking about all these sexual advances that are coming at her though, and she gets all serious for a moment. She goes, these guys, they just want my body and they just want to get in bed with me. And she's sharing the story. She goes, don't they realize I'm someone's daughter? And then she says, don't they realize one day I hope to be someone's mom? Well, that's what's happening in this passage. They're trying to remind David, this is someone's daughter. This is someone's wife, which is the last thing you think, want to think about when you want to just lustfully want what is forbidden. So what he does is he goes and he inquires. Now, now this goes back to St. Augustine. He said there were three stages in temptations. There's cravings, there's contemplation, and there's the consent of the will. So let's walk through this. You know this, like, you know, we're, none of us are above this. This is how all temptation works. First, there's a craving, right? It's like, there's something that you want. So for David, it's Bathsheba, particularly it's Bathsheba naked with him. That's what he wants. Now, here's what's interesting. This is what psychologists call focalism. Focalism is when you see something and you don't see anything else that's connected to it. And focalism is when the thing that you see is so big and then you can't see anything else around it. So let me give you an example. If you've ever had buyer's remorse, you've had focalism. Imagine like, I don't know, you see, you see a new car and it's just like, you want it. And like, it's like, well, you, what you can't see is your car is fine. In fact, you just got your car three years ago and it's fine and you don't need another. No, you see the car. What you might not also be able to see is you can't afford the car payment. It's too expensive for you. You can't afford it. You don't see it. So every once in a while, people go, well, the guy, extreme example, but the guy who leaves his wife and marries someone half his age and leaves his kids, people all the time look at that and go, how could he do that? Well, here's the answer technically. He doesn't see his wife and kids. That's the answer. He actually only sees this new woman and he doesn't see them. The second thing is contemplation. So this is, this is where sin gets more evil and mischievous in our hearts. There's the craving, I want this. The contemplation is how will I get this? What will I do to get this? Often, also, what will I do to cover this when I'm done? And you'll, know, you'll see yourself do this. You'll break yourself apart if you watch yourself. And you, you know, you'll fight with yourself. You know, don't do this. You'll have to tell somebody. Well, no, you won't have to tell somebody. You know, this will be offensive to your spouse. Well, your spouse doesn't really respect you. Well, you shouldn't steal from work. Yeah, but they don't pay me enough. It's like, you know, you'll, you'll have this kind of back and forth and you'll send out little avatars in your mind. Like, well, well what if I did this? <laughs> Come back, will that work? No, then you'll send another avatar. Well, what if I did this? Well, that wouldn't work either. What if I paid cash? Well, what if I threw it away? What if we met in another city? What if I use an incognito browser? What if I delete my history? 
And all, and all of a sudden, you're having the contemplation. And then the third step is the consent of the will. It's like when you finally go, I'm going to do it. Like there's that moment you're like, I'm going to yell. I'm going to scream at my spouse. I know it's wrong. I know it's sinful anger. I know I'm acting ridiculous, but I've just decided to give in to this. It's really the worst part of you wins. Now, the question to ask here is, how do we not get to this point? David is, and we're going to see the next verse, in one verse, he's going to commit the whole sin, in half a verse. He's going to take her and sleep with her. And um, How do we avoid this? Well, I've got at least two suggestions. Okay, The first suggestion, and I think this is true, I don't, and I'm going to just speak to men, but it works both ways. I don't think married men can be friends with women. I don't have, I have zero women friends. Zero. Nada. Zilch. None. I mean, now I have coworkers who are women who I love, and it's great to work with them. And my wife has friends, and I know them, and occasionally they come over to hang out with my wife, and I talk to them, and I'm acquainted with them. I have friends who have wives, and I get to know them. But I, I don't think it's possible to be friends, in the biblical sense especially, of sharing secrets. What do friends do? They text, they hang out, they spend time together. And I, say, I think this is important because here's what's happened, and I've seen this multiple times, and I can tell you, if you're young, you don't know this yet, maybe, but this is what will happen. Actually, it starts happening usually in medical school. If you're in medical school, you know, might want to listen to this, it is, is that um, you're, you're working a lot. You know, let's, let's say, you know, you're a guy, you're working a lot, and you're in medical school, and your spouse does, you know, she doesn't really understand. That's what you think. I mean, she does. You kind of try to tell her, but she doesn't really understand. But let me tell you who does understand. That woman you work with, she understands. She gets it. You guys have inside jokes of inside jokes, and you laugh about some things, and you, and you text, but you mostly just text about work, except for when you don't text about work. And then you, you, know, you take the same you know, time off, and you get lunch together, and, and somebody starts asking you questions about it, and this is what you say. We're only friends. Well, how about this? You can't be friends. <laughs> because I've, I've seen this go bad multiple times with people. They start with friendships and this, it gets all emotional and it, you know, and it goes places they weren't expecting. I think, and again, different careers depend on different things, but I would just be very careful ever spending time alone with somebody who's not your wife or not your husband. We're a church, it's a little different. You probably can't do this in every industry, but we just have a policy. We don't meet alone with someone of the opposite sex if we're married without the door being open. We don't even, so our offices are two minutes from here. This is how serious we are about this. Our offices are two minutes from here. I can hold my breath basically and drive from one to the other. And we have a policy that no married person can ride alone with somebody who's uh, uh, opposite sex that's not their spouse. You go, well, what could happen in two minutes? A lot, <laughs> maybe. Or let's just avoid the appearance of evil. David doesn't do these. He doesn't have the, this is one of the sermons, but he doesn't have the boundaries. He doesn't have the guardrails in his life. So he goes up to the rooftop. And in verse four, we'll just see the sin. It's, it's, it's written to be read quickly and coldly. Here it is. So David sent messengers, and look, this is a picture back to Adam and Eve, and took her. What did Adam do? What did Eve do? They took the fruit and ate. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him and lay with her. Now, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. That's the way for the Bible to say she's not pregnant, and she's about to be ready to be pregnant. Then she returned to her house. And I actually think at the end of verse 4, David thinks he got away with it. Have you ever thought you got away with something? Maybe you still think you're getting away with it. I think at the end of verse four, David goes, whoo, that was close. 
Your eye is gone. No one's going to know. I don't know that I'm going to do that again, but it was fun. And nothing's going to happen, right? Because we often think if people don't find out about our sin, there are no consequences. It's easy to believe that, but the consequences of your sin are, are deep. I mean, it changes you, right? So, well, that's a consequence. Your, your conscience condemns you. That's a consequence. Your intimacy with other people is hindered. That's a consequence. Your intimacy with God is hindered. That's a consequence. You keep doing it so your heart and your, and your conscience gets seared. That's a consequence. But in verse 5, David gets bad news. In verse 5, it says this, And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. This is not the news David wanted. Verse 6, So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. Now, this is interesting because, again, I, I read these verses by verses and stop and talk to us because I want us to think about, like, if you never heard this story before and you're hearing it for the first time and you read that verse, what do you think? Well, who knows? Because we've already read it. We know what's going to happen. But you might think, if you read it for the first time, you might think, oh, thank goodness. David's going to confess to Uriah. This is going to be unbelievably awkward. It's going to be messy. But God's grace is going to be in it. We're all going to figure it out together. That's what you'd hope is going to happen. Well, that's not what's happening. We'll see what's going to happen. Look, when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. That's a euphemism for go have a good time. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from a king, from the king. Um, so here's what's happening. And let me just tell you the story and then we'll read it in a minute and, and how this works. So David is going to try to get him to sleep with Bathsheba, right? He's like, well, this makes sense. Then Uriah will think the kid's his and no one will know and life will go on. That doesn't work. And then he, you'll see in a few minutes, he's gonna try to get Uriah drunk and that doesn't work. And so then he's eventually gonna have to get, have Uriah killed for him to cover the sin. So here's what's happening, and this is what I want us to think about. This is, this is some deep stuff together for a minute, is we're gonna talk about deception. Because what David does the rest of the time is he deceives, or tries to, and actually is successful at deceiving everybody except for the Lord. And deception's an interesting thing because deception is all about you know, lying, and lying's about creating another world, right? Like secular psychologists and secular therapists and stuff like that, they, they want to see kids lie by age three. They want, because here's why they say that. Because lying usually is a form of intelligence. Because think about how smart you have to be to lie. Especially if you're like three. It's like, you have to create a whole other world that does not exist, has never existed, and never will exist. You have to think about a lot of things that happen. And then that has to correspond with reality and cover reality. So that people, so when your three-year-old tells you a lie, I mean, first time my three-year-old told me a lie, I'm like, I'm impressed. I'm a, <laughs> You're also in big trouble, but I'm impressed. <laughs> because you had to think about what was going on upstairs with your brother, and you had to create another story that isn't what happened, and then you had to tell me that story and hope your brother doesn't tell me something different. It's, you know, so here's what's interesting about lying, though. Lying is the sin that lets every other sin live. I know, it's hard. It's just deep stuff, because really what happens is, like, I mean, think about that, right? I mean, none of us do this, but if you just told the truth all the time, you really would be free. You, you know, it'd be awkward at first, and... But imagine, like, you know, and every once in a while you meet somebody kind of like this, and they just tell you the truth. They need to learn how to sand off some of the rough edges and not be so blunt about it. Fair enough. But they just tell you the truth. They tell you the truth about their marriage. They tell you the truth about their struggles. They tell you the truth about their money. It's almost too much to handle sometimes because you're interacting with the real person, not a persona, and it's just like, wow. But, it, but it, when you lie, you let us in, live, and linger, and grow larger, Right? And here's what's interesting about this, and this is why I think this is worth talking about for a minute and why I'm pausing on it. 
is sometimes the deception is actually worse than the sin that it's covering. So for example, let me give you a silly example. I don't know, say some, a guy and a girl, they're married, they have struggle, they, they don't make a lot of money, this happens, right? They, they don't, they're, they're, get, they're barely getting by, they don't, neither of them have good jobs. And so they basically say, look, we don't make a lot of money, so it's, it's bills and it's basics, and that's it. We don't have time for any he money and she money, okay? <laughs> we, just gotta, we just gotta do the basics. Well, the guy says he's gonna do that, but then he finds out how to make another 100 bucks. I'm making this story up. And he uses that 100 bucks, and he goes out, and he, I don't know, he likes Starbucks, so he gets Starbucks. That's not a sin. You know, and he, he goes to the movies, because that's good movies. He eats out some meals. She doesn't know that he's doing this. But he's, do, he's doing it. He's not using the money to help them. He's using it extra. He found it on the side. It's like, now, at the end of the day, is that sin that bad? Again, I know all sin's terrible. But I'm saying, if you look at it by itself, if you want to, what's bad is all of the deception and all of the lying and all of the hiding and all of the cover-up, right? And, and you'll see this too. Whenever sin is revealed, the, for the people that are connected to that person, the harder thing almost always than the sin is the deception connected to it. I mean, I cannot tell you how many times something's come out, you know, someone gets caught or they confess. And it's like, okay, you know, they, it's a classic story. It could be guy or girl, and they struggle with looking at pornography. And, they, and they, they try to, they fight against it, you know, and they don't do it for a while, and they do it again, and they don't tell anyone. And then finally they, finally they either get caught or finally they get overwhelmed and they confess. Either way, I don't know. But then the spouse finds out. And one of the things that then they'll ask usually is, well, how long was this going on? And every once in a while, or almost always, the guy will say, since high school. And the guy's like 40. And so it's like, then, the, then what, what, what's harmful and hurtful usually for the spouse is the spouse like, wait a second, high school, you're 16. Now you're 40. That's 24 years. And then, it, you know, and then the spouse will ask certain questions. Well, so when we were at the beach in 2015 for two weeks, did you look at it then? Uh-huh. Well, how about when we were at my parents' house? Back in 2010, was it a part? Uh-huh. And what's so hard for people is it's the level of deception and for how long it was hidden. Which little parenthesis on that, if you get in that situation, you have to decide the person who's been sinned against, how much do you want to know? And then you need to tell him or her how much you want to know. And then it needs to all come out at once. And then it needs to be done being asked about. We can't, we can't be relational archaeologists and keep going back and, and again and again and again. But it's the deception that's so deep. So David is becoming a liar. Let me show you what happens here. We'll read this quickly. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord, and he did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark in Israel and Judah dwell in Booth, and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. It's interesting. He's Uriah, in this story, David does not point us to Christ. Uriah points us to Christ. What is Uriah? Uriah is living the life David should have lived. Uriah is doing the things David should have done. Uriah is saying the things David should have said. Look what happens next. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also and tomorrow, and I will send you back. 
So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. He's hoping, I get you know, Uriah drunk, his inhibitions are lower, and he'll do something. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. It's interesting. What we're seeing here is that drunk Uriah is more righteous than sober David. That's what we're seeing. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, send Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. So what happens here is David gives Uriah his own death sentence to deliver to Joab. He has no idea because there would be a king seal on it. He wouldn't open it up. So here's this letter basically that's going to send Uriah to death row. Here's what happens. Joab, and as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. Often great sin can't be covered up unless you have people helping you. Joab is not the type of friend that you need. <laughs> In this situation, he's helping cover up David's sin. Verse 17, and the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting and he instructed the messengers, when you finish telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises and if he says to you, why did you go near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech and the son of Jerezabeth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. See, what would happen is when they would besiege a city, they would surround that city and then they would starve that city. So, you you know, we don't have, they didn't have indoor plumbing. They didn't have Amazon Prime to deliver things. You know, it's like once you got around the wall completely, that, that city was done because they couldn't go out to get food and they couldn't go out to get water. So once you're surrounded the city, it's over. You starve, you wait and you starve them out. What you don't do is send more reinforcements in once the city has basically been won. So what they're doing is foolish, right? They're going to send Uriah in and then he's, he becomes vulnerable. He gets shot from the wall. Here's, I think, one of the principles. When people are trying to cover up their sin, they will do foolish things. Pay attention. And oftentimes you don't see these things to the very end. And you, Don't beat yourself up too much. People beat themselves up afterwards. It's like, I, I didn't notice. I just thought he liked staying up late all the time. Stupid me. I just thought he liked to travel. I wondered why I always went to the same place all the time, but I just, I, you know. I wondered why I kept staying at work all the time, much later than anybody else he worked with. It didn't make sense to me. That's the kind of thing happening. Like things are happening and they don't quite make sense. And, and watch what happens next. Verse 22, so the messengers went, came to David and told David all Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, thus shall you say to Joab, and look at this, do not let this matter displease you. Don't be bothered by this. The same David who wept over his enemies, his enemies Saul dying, feels nothing when his friend Uriah dies. Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. So what's happening here is we see where sin takes us. Basically, sin, sin hardens our heart. So if you read in the book of Hebrews, there's two moments with sin. The first, it says it'll deceive you, and then it'll harden you. 
And one of the ways it hardens you is it hardens you so that you don't care how your sin affects other people. And that's a really dangerous place because that's God's common grace. You may want to do some really terrible things where you're like, I don't want to hurt my wife. I don't, I mean, there's a terrible part of me that wants to do some terrible things, but I don't want to hurt my kids. Maybe I want to do some unethical things at work, but I don't want to do that because I could hurt the employees. But when you get to the place where you go, I don't care. It's about me. It's about what I want. That's where David is. So look how it ends. This is how chapter 11 ends. When the wife of, wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent her and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. I believe this is the second time David thinks he got away with it. Right? The first time is in verse 4. He doesn't know she's pregnant. He goes, well, that was a lot of fun. No one's going to know. Uriah's not home for a couple more weeks. That's over. I think he breathes, breathes a sigh of relief now. Oh, thank God. It cost me a lot. It took a lot of energy. 10% of me feels bad, but it's over. And he gets to look like the great guy because back then there's no social security. There's no social safety net. So uh, your husband dies and your friend marries you so that he could take care of you. Well, everyone thinks, well, thank God for David. But then we get this, look at this. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Remember, David said, don't let this displease you. And the Lord says, I'm displeased by this. Let me ask you, what are you doing that's displeasing the Lord? I mean, some of, I mean, you know, actually, immediately, if you'll think about it. And some of it, like someone told you about it, but, but for some of you, it's like, nobody knows that you're doing this. There's an old saying, what's secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. The angels are like, I can't believe it. He's doing it again. Michael, get over here. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's, and here's what's interesting. God's going to send Nathan. And Nathan's going to come with a story to wake up David. Now, stories are powerful. We need stories. And, and, he's, and David is, is so hardened and so blinded by his sin, he needs a story. And sometimes this is what happens. I heard a story one time of a pastor. He came in, and there was this dead and dying church. You know, in some of these churches, they chew up and spit out pastors for fun. They just, you know, again and again and again. Well, I don't know. They were on their third or fourth pastor, and this guy comes in, and he's like, he's a tough pastor. And these people try to chew him up and spit him out. And he says, no way. And he says, guys, he gets up one Sunday and says, this church is dead. He said, it's so dead. We're having a funeral next weekend. Invite your friends and dress like it's a funeral. They're like, what's going on here? He says, so, so they come the next week. The whole worship center's set up like a funeral. All the signage is like a funeral. He's got a coffin in the front of the, uh, right in front of the stage. He preaches a funeral sermon for the church. And then he says, afterwards, before you head out, he says, he says, inside the coffin, I put the reason the church is dead. So if you're interested, before you leave, go look in the coffin, you'll see the reason the church is dead. As people left, they walked up to the coffin and inside the coffin was a mirror. Pretty cool. <laughs> I'm putting that one in my back pocket. No. Um, but stories are powerful. Nathan... Here's Nathan's story. We'll read it quickly. We're running out of time here. Uh, the Lord said to Nathan, uh, the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich, the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he, and he brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms and was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and he prepared it for the man who had come to him. 
Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. So there's a principle here of like, sometimes you'll need to be a Nathan and sometimes you'll need Nathans in your life. And what they tend to do is they tend to help you see your sin from a different perspective, right? I don't know, because say your marriage is going terrible, which for some people, their marriage is going terrible. And, and you know, and someone wants to confront you about it. Well, guess what? You're ready. You're ready to defend it. You're ready to tell us why it's okay. And actually, you're probably ready to tell us a couple of things that are wrong with us, right? That's how it works. Like you'll have people like, all right, if they ever came to me, I know two or three things I'd bring up to them. So the wise thing is, he, David does, or Nathan does something where he tries to distance David because by the way, we're, as a fallen creature, we're better at giving advice than taking advice, even for the same situation. And so what he does is he, he creates distance. So say if someone's struggling with their marriage, maybe you'd say something like this. Would you want your kids to have your marriage? That'll wake up the average person if they're not completely asleep. Would you want someone to treat your daughter the way you're treating your wife? Would you want someone to treat your son the way you're treating your husband? What would you say to somebody that you loved who was dealing with what you're dealing with? Well, all of a sudden, the person might wake up. Well, God has some hard words here. I want to read this real quick. He says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house, your master's wives, and into your arms. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would have added to you much more. In other words, God says, what you did is you looked for what only I can give you in different people and places. David, you wanted Bathsheba. You love beauty. I'm the most beautiful being ever. You wanted intimacy. You could have intimacy with your maker and your creator and your redeemer. You wanted an adventure. I get it, David. You had a little excitement. I'll give that. I'll give you that. I got those resources. You just got to ask. He says this, why have you despised? That's to think very little of. The word of the Lord to do what's evil in his sight. You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and you have taken his wife to be your wife and you've killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. <clears throat> now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house. This is not punishment, but this is discipline. This is not punishment, but it's consequences. Because you've despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. Basically, what happens is at the end of the story, remember David says, this man will pay fourfold. That was the Levitical law. When you stole something or you, kept, or you killed an animal, you had to pay fourfold. What most people see is the rest of the book of 2 Samuel is David paying fourfold for his sin. And he pays for it with four of his sons. His first son will die. Another son will become a womanizer, a picture of what he did. Another son will become a murderer, a picture of what he did. And another son will become power hungry, a picture of him. It's generational sin. But there's a word of hope here. Look, David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed, you've utterly scorned the Lord. The child who's born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. In verses 15 to 23 is David pleading with God to spare his son's life. The son ends up dying David ends up worshiping the Lord and David ends up saying, I will go to my son, but my son will not go come return to me, which actually have been comforting words for parents who've lost infants. My son went to heaven, I will visit him, but he won't come to me. And then, but there's a word of hope at the very end, I want you to see in verse 24. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba 
and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. What does Solomon mean? It means peace. Somehow David got to the place where he could say, okay, I repented. It's been hard, but we have peace again. There can be peace even on the end end of all the horrible things in our lives. And the Lord loved him. What an encouraging word. And sent messengers by Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Now, here's what will just hurt your head if you think about it for five minutes today. If David never sleeps with Bathsheba and never kills Uriah, we never get Solomon. And look, Solomon wasn't a perfect king, but Solomon was wise. Solomon wrote three books of the Bible. Solomon built the temple. Solomon did a lot of good things. And for some of you, depending on your age, depending on what you've done, some of you go, oh my gosh, I've already done it. I've, I've already crossed the line. I've already given in to some things. And I'm already feeling the consequences. And the answer is, look, man, who knows what God can do? I mean, we see out of the greatest evil can often come the greatest good. That's the story of Joseph. His brothers wanted evil. He said, God meant it for good. That's the story of Jesus. You try to kill the innocent son of God, and I use it to save sinners, millions and millions and millions of sinners. There's a hopeful word here, remember? God says, I've put your sin away. And you may go, God, where'd you put it? He put it on someone, Jesus Christ. See, Uriah points us to Jesus in this story. Well, who is Uriah? He is the righteous man who goes to his death to cover the sins of another man. Wow. Uriah did it unwillingly, but Jesus does it willingly. And we don't know, guys, how all this, there's some pain in our lives, but we don't know how all this is gonna work out till we get to heaven. You know what I've often thought? What is David's first conversation with Uriah in heaven? He gets to Uriah, he goes, he sees Uriah and he probably says something like this, I'm sorry. I was so stupid, I was so sinful, I was so selfish. I cut your life short, I stole your wife. But guess what? And we're gonna have some conversations. You're gonna have your own versions of these with certain people in heaven. Maybe you never got to say you're sorry to your dad. Maybe you never got to say something to somebody, you're gonna see them in heaven. And guess what Uriah's gonna say? I forgive you. And guess where David's going right after he talks to Uriah? He's going to talk to his son, who he never got to really know. I'm so sorry. I made some foolish decisions and they affected your life and I never got to know you. And the son's gonna forgive him as well. This story is a warning to us and I just want us to feel the warning of it. This warning, it's, it's a warning to stay in the battle or get back in the battle. I had a pastor a long time ago tell me, he said, Satan's patient. You're not getting away with anything. He's just waiting for the opportune time. So I wanna warn you of that, right? It's like, some of you think you're getting away with something. It's like, Satan's like, no, what? Well, here's what I'm gonna wait. I'm gonna wait till your wife really thinks you guys are close and then I'll reveal this. I, uh, Satan's saying, I'll wait till your kids get into middle school. So they'll be completely confused when it all comes out. I'll wait till your ministry or your influence gets to the highest then I'll pull back the curtain and reveal it. What I want us to do as we close is I want us to count the cost so that we never cross the line. There was a guy named Randy Alcorn and he made a list and you should make your own list. Of, he said, this is what would happen if I crossed the line. He was particularly talking about having an affair. You might wanna write it down. This is what would happen if I became a drunk. You know, this is what would, be, <laughs> this is what would happen if I became the guy who's addicted to pornography. This is what would happen if I would have an affair. Write down the list. Let me give you the list. It's the same for everybody. I would grieve the Lord. That's what you write. That's the first thing. He said, number two, I, he said, I would lose reward. 
He said, number three, he said, I'd lose the trust of my wife. Number four, I'd lose the credibility and love of my kids for a season. Number five, I would lose whatever ministry I had. Number six, anyone that I ever invested in would be confused. Number seven, I would struggle to forgive myself even if God forgave me. And number eight, everybody who doesn't love God would laugh at me and it would be a victory for the other side. Let's stay in the battle. Let's get in the battle. Let's count the cost. If you've been, if, you're, if for some reason you already crossed the line, let's trust God for a Solomon in your life. And let's do this together. Let's pray. Lord, we just, we, this is a hard message. It's a hopeful message because there's grace, but there's also discipline, Lord, and it's how, partly how you honor us. Lord, we just, we just lift this, <laughs> this whole story up to you and we, just, it, we use it as a warning in our own lives, Lord. Lord, I pray you would give us community, that you would give us the community that we need so that whenever that Bathsheba in our life shows up and we end up on a rooftop we shouldn't be, we've got somebody to call, we've got somewhere to go. That's what the church is supposed to be, Lord. Lord, we also pray if there's been anyone who's already said, I've crossed the line, listen, we are a church for all people. And we are a church for people whose lives have fallen apart. And Lord, we are gonna see you work it for good just like you did with David just like you did with Joseph and just like you did with Jesus. We ask it in his name, amen.